to look at the life of Jesus, you would see that he did extraordinary things. He, he fed the, 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 the hungry, he healed the sick, and he mended the lame and the broken. He, he brought sight to the blind, and he made the deaf hear again. Extraordinary things. Uh, he, he lived for, for the underclass. He, he lived for the down and outers. He, he was always reaching to people that many of us would never even think of reaching toward. And we would applaud those things and we would cheer those things on and we would say that's one of the reasons we follow this man named Jesus. But, but Jesus himself said that he did not come for those specific things. Do, do you realize that Jesus told us why he actually came and made his dwelling among us here on planet Earth? As a matter of fact, in John's record, it records why Jesus himself said that he came. It's interesting, in the weeks leading up to the death of Jesus, he has this moment where he is sharing with his closest followers. Uh, in John's 12th chapter, he says, he goes, my soul is brokenhearted. And then he kind of is almost like he's speaking out loud his thoughts. He says, should I turn away from this moment? Should I run from this moment? And he says, no. He says, for this very reason, for this very purpose, did I come into the world to give up my life as a ransom for many. I need to glorify God in this. In other words, Jesus said, this is why he came. Not for all of those things that we cheer, not for all of those great things that we remember him for. No, he came, he said, to give his life on a cross as a ransom for our sin. Now, when you start to think of the cross, the cross is a, is a crazy thing, right? I mean, it's been around for a long, long time. Actually, 500 years before Christ, the Persian Empire, they utilized the cross. And it wasn't a cross as you and I think of a cross with an upward stake and a horizontal stake. Now, the Persians, their version of the cross was, was a singular stake that they pummeled people on and, and, and literally ran them through and hung them out to dry that way. Uh, and then, of course, the Romans came along later and they perfected the use of the cross. They added the horizontal beam to it and they would hang men on the cross for all to see. It was a brutal way for somebody to die. Eventually, the Emperor Constantine would outlaw death by crucifixion over the entire Roman world. You see, in Jesus' day, death by crucifixion was reserved only for the most horrific criminals. Uh, the majority of Roman criminals were actually beheaded. Only the worst of the worst were crucified. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jewish people 
in, in Jesus' day, uh, they loathed the idea of a human being hanging on a cross or in any sort of a mechanism. As a matter of fact, the, the scriptures in the Old Testament talk about this idea of, of death through hanging as a, as a way of punishment as being reserved only for the worst of people. And if somebody was to be hung, they were not to even be left out in the evening time. It was to be put away so it would not be seen by the people, right? It was just such a horrible, horrible way to die. As a matter of fact, the ancient Jews Jewish historian who wrote Roman history, his, his name was Josephus, he said that, that, that death through crucifixion was the most horrendous way that the Roman government chose to kill somebody. And the Roman historian Cicero, he actually said it like this, that he begged the decent people of Rome, if there be any, not even to speak, not even to speak of this idea of death through crucifixion. You see, crucifixion was the worst of the worst sort of ways that a human being would be put to death. Death through crucifixion was such a horrendous way to die that we actually have a new word that, that describes this. We get the word excruciating from the Latin word that means from the cross. You see, death on the cross or death through crucifixion was so horrendous that we came up with a new word to describe it, that it was an excruciatingly painful way to die, just a terrible way to die. As a matter of fact, for those who were being crucified, it was common practice that they would often slump their bodies forward, hastening their own death because they would be trying to empty their lungs of air. It was a terrible way to die. And of course, the Romans weren't just satisfied with a slow, painful death on the cross. They had to add to it. And so it was very common. It was a common practice in Rome that a crucifixion would also be accompanied by a severe beating beforehand in order to exasperate the pain. As a matter of fact, a Roman term came out of this. They called it death through 39 lashes death through 39 lashes. This is a really interesting thing. You see, what they would do is they, they kind of figured out that the average human being, now I don't know if it was actually 39 lashes or not, but the average human being could take the abuse of 39 Roman strikes before they would actually die. And so they would beat somebody to the point of death before hanging them on a cross. And they would use what was called the cat of nine tails. That was the whip that they used. It was a whip that had nine different uh, tentacles that went out and these tentacles at the end would be fashioned with uh, parts of metal or parts of stone or parts of, of bone that would that would beat a human body, much like a meat tenderizer would beat meat before you cook it in order to make it soft. And it would literally beat into the body and it would, and eventually those tentacles would gouge into the back, into the muscles and into the spinal cord, and it would slowly rip the person apart, all in order to, to help their death process be the most horrendous death process that one could have. And so this beating was so severe that it would often make a man unrecognizable. And ironically so, over 200 years before Christ was ever crucified, the great prophet Isaiah writes about the coming Messiah. And, and, and Isaiah says that the Messiah would be so beaten that he would no longer be recognizable as a man. I think that's rather interesting. And so they take Jesus and they beat him nearly to the point 
of death. And the scripture records all of this. And, and, and then to make matters worse, it says that they fashioned this crown, but not a crown of beauty, not a crown of grandeur, but a crown of thorns. And then it, it says they, they put it on, the, on, on Jesus's head. And they didn't just lay it on his head, but, it, but that word describes the idea of striking his head with it so that the thorns would gouge into his skull. And, and you can imagine now the blood flowing down his face. And, and then to add insult to injury, it, it says that they, they marched Jesus to the place where he would be crucified. And in the process of that, that they plucked out his beard because, you know, it's all kind of cool and hip now that guys have these cool hipster beards. But in Jesus's day, um, that marked you as a man. Uh, in the Jewish community, a beard signified that you were a man of honor and, and a distinguished man. And so to humiliate our Lord and Savior, they, they plucked his beard out, making him unrecognizable. So I want you to think about this in the case of Jesus. He was arrested in the city. He was tried in the city. He was beat nearly to death in the city, but he was crucified outside of town. And this was often the case uh, in Roman government where they would have these public humiliations, these public beatings in the middle of the city. And then they would take the victim outside of town. And in, in the case of most of these victims, as was the case of Jesus, they would make him carry his own cross to his own crucifixion. So at this point, I want you to picture in your mind, they take this large timber, perhaps weighing maybe a hundred pounds, and they strap it to his body, the body that has been beaten, the body that has been brought almost to the point of death, even though he was young and even though he was more than likely in excellent health before this time, under the weight of this cross, under the weight of this beating, he's forced to make this mile-long journey from the center of town, outside of town, carrying this this incredibly uh, heavy timber on his back. And I want you to know this, not only was this timber heavy, but it was also expensive. And so they would often recycle the, the, the crosses. And, and so Jesus was forced to carry this, this cross that was used by countless other criminals before him and his blood begins to mix with, with their blood. And onto his bare, broken body, he's strapped with this, this hue of wood that is gouging him and he's forced to carry this through the city streets outside of town. And in the process, it says that he collapsed like many of the criminals would collapse. collapse. Many of these prisoners, many of these men sentenced to die, they would collapse over and over. And Jesus got to the point where he could no longer carry the cross. And so the Roman guards, it says that they looked around and they found a man named Simon from the city of Cyrene and, and they grabbed him and they forced him to carry the cross of Jesus the rest of the way to the hill on which Jesus was going to be crucified. And as was the case in most of these ancient cultural crucifixions, the people would line the streets and they would mock Jesus and they would spit upon Jesus and they would often urinate upon the one condemned to die. And so Jesus was marched through these streets and eventually he comes to the hill, the cross that Simon ended up 
carrying the rest of the way was laid before him and they take Jesus and they slam him to the cross. And now this, this carpenter who had driven many nails in his life is now with his arms outstretched. He's being nailed to a cross. And in Rome had these Roman spikes, they called them, that were between five and eight inches in length usually. And they would drive them either through the palm of the hand or the wrist of the hand and they would outstretch him as far as they could and then they would nail him to the cross and then they would take his feet and they would affix them through both of his feet one nail straight through to the cross and then I want you to picture this in utter agony in utter defeat already, his body broken and, and marred and savaged in every conceivable way, with the crown affixed to his head. They take this cross that had been tied together and they lift it up and then they drop it into the hole that was pre-dug to seat this cross in. And just imagine that moment of dropping and how the bones would break and how the tendons would be stretched and how his back, his raw back, would scratch up against the hewn wood. Unbelievable, excruciating level of pain. And then to add further mockery to it all, it says that they stripped Jesus of his clothing. They actually divided his clothing and gambled for his clothing. Now, I don't know why you would want a clothing so bloodied, but it says that they did this to mock him. And so here's Jesus hanging in shame, beaten, and broken. And then to top it all off, the Romans and those who were crucifying Jesus, they were not satisfied with that. It, it says that Pilate ordered that a, that a sign be made. And the sign read in English, here is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In other words, they wanted to mock him to make him realize that there was nothing that he was king over. This kingdom that he spoke of was coming to nothing. This was the sum total of the kingdom of God. It was hanging on a cross. It was beaten and it was despised. As a matter of fact, what's interesting, it, it says in Isaiah, again, hundreds of years before Jesus, it says that, that, that this great prophet sees the coming Messiah. God gives him a glimpse of the coming Messiah. And it says these words in the book of Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely, the scripture says, he took up our pain and he bore our suffering and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted by him. Surely the scene of Jesus' crucifixion was, was grotesque. It was... It was brutal beyond imagination, but, but it, friends, it was a common thing, and this was not done in private. They would do this in full view of the public. As a matter of fact, uh, they would often uh, crucify people at, at eye level so passerbyers could mock them and spit upon them and urinate on them, and, and, and it was just a terrible, terrible way to die, and it was completely common in its day. As a matter of fact, Rome records tens and tens of thousands of crucifixions. As a matter of fact, you might remember uh, the ancient wars between Athens and Sparta. Well, Spartacus was one of the great leaders of Sparta. And the day that Spartacus died, they crucified, get this, in one day, 6,000 of Spartacus's 
followers. And, and it says that they lined the road for miles with crucifixions. And this was recorded throughout ancient history, that man had this brutal way of killing another man, and it was called crucifixions. But, but here is my question. What is different about Jesus' crucifixion? What is different about this man, Jesus, dying on the cross? And why do, they, why do we say that he died on the cross for us? What was different about Jesus rather than the tens of thousands of others? Well, friends, this is at the center of the Christian message. This is at the center of the life of Jesus. This is at the center of the gospel story. And this is what we need to talk about today. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. But there is a question that begs to be asked and it deserves to be answered. I've had many of my unbelieving friends over the years ask me something like this. How, how could the, the crucifixion of Jesus possibly be a loving act? Or how could Christians like many of us consider the crucifixion good news? Or, or how could Christians somehow think that it is good that Jesus, if he is supposed to be the son of God, how could we possibly in a million years consider it to be good news and in loving act of God, this, this creator God who is supposed to be benevolent? How could we possibly think that? Well, I think that's a fair question and I think it deserves to be answered and I think this is where we need to start. It's, it's where we, we need to go from somehow to make a jump between the, the historical fact of the crucifixion to the theological meaning of that fact. Does that make sense? We need to make this shift because theology is, the, the, the word theology means the study of God or, or to figure out how God thinks and how God acts and reacts in, in the world around us and, and what God is doing in the world of, uh, around us. And so somehow we need to make this jump from the, from the historical fact of the crucifixion to understanding the meaning or the theology that drove the, the, the crucifixion of, of Jesus. And so as quickly and as simply as I, I possibly can, I want to try to explain this to you because there are, um, there are two words that, that seem to be almost uniquely Christian. They're used in Christian contexts all the time. They are, they are fancy words that have been used by, um, by, by these kind of theological nerds for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and they're used in the Christian church. And the two words are substitutionary and atonement. These two words help us to understand the meaning of the death of Jesus. These two words, listen to me, these two words separate Jesus's crucifixion from the tens of thousands of other crucifixions that happened in his day. It changes everything. And so as quickly as I can, I want to connect a few dots for you um, about the, I want us to understand there's a, the kind of an order of events and there's the character of God and then, and then there's the creation of God and, and then there's this thing called sin that's introduced to the world and, and of course God responds to this sin and he responds not only to sin, but he responds to sinners like you and like me. 
And so let me, let me kind of connect these dots because this is huge, friends. I don't know if you're even ready for this, but this is how we need to understand the death of Jesus on the cross. This will give us context to understand what separates Jesus from all of the others who died on a crucifix. And so follow me on this. So when you look around our world, you, you see this, don't you? You see that it's broken. You, you see that the world is hurting. And it doesn't take much of a scientist to figure this out. You see that the world is corrupt and evil and full of pain and regret and disappointment. And it's all the way around. And friends, if you're not careful and if I'm not careful, it's easy to start to think that God is like this. That even somehow that God is to blame for this world. And friends, I would just say to you that that's just simply not true. That God is a God of love. God is a God of holiness. And God is a God of goodness. And, and the thing is, I would humbly submit to you that it's not God who is to blame for this world's problems. It's the absence of God. It's a world without God. I mean, and I think that you know this internally, right? Because if you were to just pause for a moment and look inward in your own soul, you would understand that God is good and that God is holy and that God is just and loving and that he wants these things for our world as well. You would know this internally because if you were to just pause for a moment and start to do a comparison game between who you are, if you were to do a self-assessment of who you really are and compare it to who you really want to be, you would see that there's a great gap, that you fall short, that, that it's not God who screwed up the world and it's not God who screwed up your world, it's we, it's you. You've screwed up your world. You've done things, I've done things. You, you've, you've thought things, you've reacted in certain ways, you've committed certain things that you later regret in life, that you later are so disappointed that has kept you from being all that God wants you to be. And if you were to pause and think about this in the quiet of your own soul, if you were to just dial this into your own soul for a minute, you would know that it is God and the God who is loving, the God who is full of holiness and goodness. It is that God who is calling you to be something more in your life, to be in something different in your life. He, he's wanting you to move between this where you are versus who you really want to be. It's God who puts this conscience in you and he calls you to something more. And so I, I think that if we were to think deep enough about this, this is not God's fault that the world's a wreck. It's mostly our fault that the world is a wreck and that the world is broken. The scripture says that God did not intend for this to happen. That when we were first created, that God created us to be with him. That God created us to do life with him, to have this unbroken goodness between us and God, to have this unbroken peace between us and God. But but because of our decisions, because of our self-will, that we, we did things to break the relationship with God. There's this thing that, that the Bible calls sin enters into our relationship with God and it separates us from God. It breaks us from our relationship with God and it ushers in a whole different world. Sin is what breaks our relationship with God. And dare I say that sin is what breaks our relationship with other people around us. Sin is what separates us from God. And because God is a living God, God is a holy God, and God is the source of life, sin 
the result of sin is this thing called death. It's similar to like these pieces of electronical data equipment that we have laying all over our houses, right? They're great. They add a whole bunch of life when we first get them and we plug them in and they're just, they're bringing a whole bunch of life. But eventually, if we unplug them from the power source, they're still there, but they are functionally dead, right? They're functionally dead. Well, let me tell you something, friends. The scripture paints this picture that you and I, we are more than just this evolutionary blob of cells. It paints this picture that you were created to do life with God, that you were created to know God and to be known by God. You were created to, to have peace in your soul with your creator, that you were driven toward this naturally. And when we have this thing called sin come into our life, it begins to separate us. And it's like we become unplugged from the power source and a little bit dies inside of us every single day. And, and suddenly there is a blackness of soul. There is a death of soul that occurs in us. And sin, the Bible says, is what does this to us. It separates us and it keeps us from becoming all that we're supposed to be. We're alive but we're functionally dead. We are alive, but we are spiritually dead. And the Bible says that sin causes us to move away from the source of life. It causes us to move away from our Father in heaven. And sin, when it separates us, it brings something into our life. There's one little verse in the scripture. I just want to show you one little verse. And it paints this picture of these two words, atonement and uh, substitutional death. Listen to what happens when sin has its full way in our life. It says this in the book of Romans. It says, for the wages, we earn something, wages. This is what we earn because of the sin in our life. It says that the wages of sin is what? Of death. And let me, let me just say, pause. You know this to be true, even if you're not a believer. You, you know that in your heart of hearts, that there are things that you regret, there are things that you wish you could have changed, there's things that are holding you, that, that you're addicted to, things that are consuming your life that you don't want to consume your life. And it's taking you and it's causing you to become somebody that you don't want to be. And the scripture says that ultimately it ends in this thing called death, that we're separated from, from God, not just now in our own life, not just a little bit of us dying every single day, but ultimately that we die for all of eternity, that we are separated for all of eternity from the God who loves us and, created it, and who created us and who we're supposed to want to be with. It says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In this one little verse, uh, it explains the doctrine or the theology of substitution. It explains the doctrine of atonement. Sin, the blackness of our soul that we wrestle with all the time, it separates us from God. But God wants to do something about it through Jesus. You hear me? That God looks at our separation and goes, I'm not taking it anymore. I'm not going to let you just walk away from me. I'm not just going to let humanity drift. But I'm going to come and I'm going to do something about it. And here's the thing, friends. On the cross, listen to me, on the cross, Jesus became our substitute. Jesus became our substitute. On the cross, Jesus was made the worst part of who we are. This does not mean that Jesus sinned, or he, nor did he ever sin. It, it means that he, would, he had literally become sin for us. On the cross, up to the cross, sinless. But on the cross, something happens. That the Bible teaches us this understanding has to occur, this theology has to occur in our mind, that on the cross, something switches, and Jesus, the one who was perfect, Jesus, the one who was spotless, Jesus, the one who was sinless, becomes sin. He bears the weight of sin. He literally becomes the worst part of the human expression. On the cross, Jesus became all that was ugly. 
He became all that was wicked. He became all that was defiled and evil and corrupt and rebellious and hideous. He became the worst of who you are and the worst of who I am. On the cross, he does this for us. Uh, In the moment of the cross, listen to me, some of you aren't going to like this at all, but this is what the scripture teaches us. Because on the cross, Jesus became an adulterer. Jesus became a homosexual. Jesus became a pervert, an alcoholic, an addict. He became a bigot. He became everything that we dream is the worst part of the human experience. Jesus became that for us. It says that he was without sin, but literally we be, he became our sin. He absorbed the blows of our sin. It, it says that in the moment of the cross, listen to this, that, that Jesus who had known this peace with God, his father, that Jesus who had known this relationship in an unbroken way with God, suddenly because the weight of sin comes over him, listen, because he takes this on for us, it says that he cries out to his father who he had this unbroken relationship. He cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned away from me? And in a moment, Jesus experiences what you and I experience. He experiences distance from God, his father. He experienced a blackness of soul that he had never known before. And the scripture says that he became everything that we are. The worst part of everything. The great theologian uh, from the 1500s, Martin Luther, said it this way, that, that, that Jesus on the cross had the great exchange, the perfect, sinless, spotless son of God in exchange for the broken and the sin-stained and the sin-soaked. That his perfection was exchanged for our imperfection. His, his obedience was for our disobedience. His intimacy with God for our distance with God. That, that his blessing was for our cursing and his life was for our death. Isaiah, the great prophet, he says it different. He says it like this. Uh, Isaiah 53, he says, verse six, he says, all of us, all of us like sheep, we have, we've strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own path, to make our own decisions, to, to do what we want, to try to find our own satisfaction in life. He says, yet, God sees us. And yet the Lord laid on him, this coming Messiah, this spotless, sinless lamb of God, He lays on him the sins of us all. The sins of us all. The fact that Christians celebrate the murder of Jesus is absolutely disgusting without understanding the theology of substitution and atonement. To think that we would celebrate the death of the the one that all of us would agree was, at least, in the very least, an exceptional human being would be absolutely grotesque if we didn't understand the meaning behind it all, the theology behind it all. You see, the Bible teaches that God is good and that God is just and that God is holy and that holiness and justice and the goodness of God, it must be satisfied. And a very simple question for you, do you think that God, when he looks around our planet, when he looks around in your life and in my life, do you think God is satisfied Do you? Do you think that he looks around and is satisfied because God is good and God is holy and God is just? Does he look at your life and go, yeah, I'm satisfied with that? My guess is it's probably not. God looks around our world and says, listen, this must be accounted for. And pause for a second. We don't want a God who goes, oh, look at those people. They're just killing each other all day long. It's just wonderful. 
Kids will be kids. What? We don't want a God like that. We want a God who is just. We want a God who is judge. We want a God who's going to call all men and all women into account. We don't want a God like a father who just, it doesn't annoy you when you're at a restaurant and the kid's acting all crazy and the dad just is sitting there sipping his coffee, not thinking anything about it. It's annoying. Now, could you imagine God turning away from us, his children, and just saying kids will be kids? No. God is just and his justice demands to be satisfied. The wrath of God should fall on all of us. The wrath of God should fall on our world. Listen, the wrath of God should fall on me. And my guess is that you know who you are in the blackness of your own soul. You don't need a preacher to uh, point a finger at you. My guess is that you know it, that you know that the wrath of God should fall on you. You don't need anybody to tell you that. And God says, I don't want that to happen. I don't want it to go down like that. This is how the scripture says it. This is what's going to blow your mind. I'm just going to read some scripture to you. This is how we need to understand the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's here's what it says. Isaiah, the great prophet, he says it like this. But he, Jesus, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be what? Whole. He was whipped so that we could be what? Healed. Romans 5, I love this. It says, but God showed his great what? His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were away from God, while we were enemies of God, while we could care less. He says, I'm still going to pay for you. I'm still going to reach towards you. I'm still going to come after you because I love you because of his great love for us. It says, I pass on to you. In the book of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Paul writes, he says, I pass on to you that which was most important and what was passed on to us or to me. Christ died for what? Our sins. Listen to this. 1 Peter 3, it says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for what? Sinners like me to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life by the Spirit. Amen? Because the death because death is the penalty of sin. Remember, for the wages of sin is death. Because that penalty is death, God does something extraordinary. The, the, the terms are substitution. The term is atonement, that he comes and he substitutes for us. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so, so the sinless Jesus, not figuratively, but literally stands in our place on the cross. He says, I'm going to satisfy the demands of a righteous and good and holy God on a cross. And he does for us what we should have done for ourselves. I heard a friend one time say it like this, I don't get how if God is a good God, if he's a father God who loves his son, how could God the Father pour out his wrath on his son Jesus. Especially when Jesus did everything he could to honor his father. And I gotta be honest with you, I got three sons. And I'm not giving up one of them for any of you. And I know it sounds terrible. But I'm not. But God looks at all of us. And because of his great love for us, he decides to pour out his own wrath on his own son and he spares us. This is how the scripture says it in John's record. It says, for God, anybody know this one? So loved the world. 
You and me. All of its brokenness, all of its shame, all of its perversion, all of its guilt. For God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave up his one, his only son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Clearly, listen to me, clearly. The bloody execution of Jesus was all about love. It was motivated by love. Oh, how he loves us. One of the things that confused me kind of growing up when I first became a Christian was all the talk about blood and sacrifice. It's kind of crazy. When you first like read the Bible, you're going, this is just weird. This is just weird. And then you go to church and you see all these happy church people singing with a smile on the face about blood and sacrifices. Like there's power, power, wonder working power in the blood. And you're going, in the what? What? What are you talking What? What? In the blood of the lamb. And it's crazy. And it's weird. But when you read the scripture, you begin to understand why God makes this connection. Um, Here's what I've learned. The Bible speaks so much about this idea of blood and sacrifice. One, here's one reason. And you may want to write this down. One reason is that God connects sin and blood to show that sin results in death. Do you hear this? That God makes us understand that sin results in death. And so blood represents life. And so sin and, and the blood thing, it, it comes to represent that it results in death. And here's the second thing. This is the second reason I think it's in there so much. Is that God is sickened by sin like we are sickened with blood. Now, I don't know how y'all are, but I am like a queasy, like if, like, if my kid like pokes their little finger and I'm like, oh and then, you know, my wife, she has to come to the rescue. Like, if I was a doctor and you were to come to the ER and you just lost your right arm, you would bleed to death. I would go, it sucks to be you, and I would pass out because that's just how I am, right? I react that way to blood. I don't know how you are, but I'm like, most of us, we're squirmish with this idea of of bloodshed. Most people react, listen, strongly to blood and God reacts strongly to sin. Do you hear me? We react strongly to blood, but God reacts strongly to sin. So I want to take our understanding of this idea of, of the cross to a whole new level. Maybe some of you know this already, but the Bible is broken into two parts, right? You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament re- records this, the storyline of Jesus, the work of Jesus. But the Old Testament, that part that has all these major historical figures like Moses and David and Esther and, and all of these great historical figures like Noah, all of it, listen, all of it points to a coming Messiah. All of it comes to, points to the the coming of one who would sacrifice once and for all. The Old Testament, if you were to read through it, it it constantly is talking about this theme of blood and sacrifice and and it was to prepare people. Listen, it, it was to prepare people of this, the, of the, for the coming of Jesus, where one day he would be the sacrifice for us. And you see this theme over and over in the, in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, one of the central events for the Jewish community inside of the Old Testament was this day called the Day of Atonement. Maybe you've heard of this. It's Yom Kippur. It's called the Day of 
Atonement. And it's a very interesting day. Yom Kippur is the most important day of the year for the Jewish community because it was the day that was intended to deal with the, with the separation that sin caused between God and man. It was meant to deal with the problem of sin in humanity. It was somehow meant to make it right again. And, and it was the day that the high priest would offer a sacrifice over all the land or for all the land of Israel. Now, you may know this already, but every family, every family was expected to have their own time of sacrifice during the year. Did you know that? Every single family was to have their own atonement to God. And what does the word atonement mean? It literally means to make reparations with God or to make it right with God or to cover over something with God. So you think of like the idea of a, uh, like a copier machine in the office, right? You start off with a blank white piece of paper, right? And the toner is applied. It covers over the blank piece of paper. So God looks at our sin and the blood is designed to cover over or to show that a sacrifice has been made because we squirm at blood, but God squirms at sin. And it's designed to show that God is serious and that we got to give up serious, something serious, life, life. But the day of Yom Kippur is different. It's the day that the high priest stands before the entire people of Israel and they would gather by the thousands and thousands and they would come for the day where, where there was atonement for the nation. And here's what would happen. The high priest would stand before the people and he would have two Two goats, much like these two little guys right here. And the high priest would have these two goats that were spotless and sinless, without blemish or defect. And he would take the first goat, he would choose one of the goats randomly, he would just choose one of the goats, and he would end up placing his hand on the head of the goat, that, that literally he would come and he would, he would cast the sin of the people of Israel on top of the head of the goat. So it would look, hold, hold on, hold on, Jeff, give me this guy for a second. So the priest would come. The priest would come and literally put his hand on the goat and he would confess all the sin of the people. And he would transfer figuratively, it's called propitiation. He would pour the sin of the people onto the goat. And then that goat would stand next to the priest after the priest has prayed over that goat, confessing the sin of the people. And he would take out his knife in front of all the people and he would slice the throat of the goat and he would sacrifice that goat. And that goat would shed his blood. And the reason this happened before everyone was because the people would stand there and they would hear the cry of the goat and they would squirm and they would realize that that was because of my sin. That was because of me, that the innocent paid for the guilty, that the clean paid for the unclean, that the, that the righteous paid for the unrighteous. And the people would realize what would be later spoken about Jesus that he paid for the sin of many. That he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, innocent and without sin. And that he would die on a cross like this for us. And then the second goat. Now this was interesting. So the goat is standing there kind of awaiting its fate and the high priest returns to this goat and he begins to do something different. He, 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 he again lays his hand on the goat and repeats the whole thing over again and confesses the sin of the people standing on behalf of all the people. 
And he would pray this prayer of propitiation where literally he says, onto this, this goat, figuratively, I cast all the sin of the people. And this time, the goat, the goat would not be slaughtered. The goat would be given this, this red sort of uh, tag. It would be branded. And the high priest would not slaughter this goat. No, the high priest would take this goat and lead him through the congregation. And he would lead him out of the town and out of the city. And so that every man and woman and child could look upon this goat who was guilty of their sin and would see that this goat was being cast away, was being taken out among the people, from among the people, and would be separated from the people. And the people would remain while the goat was sent into the wilderness to die. I want you to think about this, friends. Think about what happens with this. Think about the moment that, that this guilt is placed on this innocent animal and it is sent out of the village to represent our sin, your sin and my sin. It's made to represent being sent away. It's meant to carry it away. And what does Jesus do for us? What does he do for us? He carries our sin. He takes it away. He picks it up. When you're weak and you're broken and you're desperate, he comes and he carries you in ways that you cannot be carried on your own. He sends it away. And the innocent is condemned like Jesus was condemned. And the guilty like me, we go free. We're allowed to remain in the community. We're allowed to remain with our sin and everything that's broken in us. We're allowed to be part of the family still. The scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And then it goes on to say that God forgives us through the shed blood of Jesus and he does more than that. <laughs> he carries our sin. As far as the east is to the west, he casts it to the bottom of the ocean floor. He does this for me. And he does it for you because he loves you. And he doesn't want to see you separated from God. No way. Now here's what we're going to do. Back in the ancient days, the people would gather around and they would see this sacrifice. They would see the, the goat leaf. <laughs> and they would be overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God. And Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, he knew that we would need a reminder of his goodness toward us. And so he gave Christian people like, like some of us. He gave us a different way to remember him. He says, no more sacrifice. The sacrifice has been done once and for all. Thank God. Amen. Thank God.